there. I'm Phil Williams and I'd like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. Today I'm sat out in a boat on a lumpy sea off the village of Ardwell fishing for smoothhounds with, in my opinion, the most influential Scottish charter angling skipper, certainly of recent times and arguably of all time, Ian Burrett. Now I know you're based at Drumore for most, though not all of the time, and have been chartering in and around Loose Bay for well over 20 years. I think I had my first trip with you back in the early 1990s, but the great irony here is that you're not a Scot. If my memory serves me right, you actually hail from Hull on Humberside. So why set up business in this particular corner of Scotland? I actually first came up to the area and visited it with my parents when I was four, five and six. And when I grew up, some say I never have, I got a caravan and uh, ended up coming up to Scotland. We particularly came back to visit this area and of course it became once a month, then it was once a fortnight with angling friends and swapping with the family. And uh, eventually we'd end up here every weekend. It became Fridays and Mondays. So I got back to Leeds Ring Road one day and thought, what am I doing here? I really don't want to be here anymore. And uh, it was that that gave me the plunge to come up here and try and make a living up here. Might the quality of the fishing also have had any part to play in that decision? The quality of the fishing was, was, was certainly uh, the reason for starting to look at uh, a charter boat. But at the time, I didn't know whether a small charter boat would work. But uh, yes, certainly quality of the fishing, although to be fair, I'd been fishing chartering three years before I'd actually caught my first taupe. Taupe was something I got onto later in, in the days when I started. We just used to drift around for cod, and that was still plenty of cod about. And what about other species too? Pollock again was, a, was one that uh, I didn't get into straight away. It, it, it wasn't until I realised the quality of the pollock fishing that uh, we started working on it and uh, sort of developed the. Uh, the float fishing for, for Pollock, which uh, I, I don't believe had ever been done around the UK before, but now have become like an accepted way of fishing for the, some of the inshore species. In the days when I started, you could just drift around with baited feathers and you'd pick up the rays, you'd pick up brill, you'd pick up turbot. It was incredible how many fish were about and you'd, you didn't need to be particularly sophisticated in the, your techniques. So to one extent of things changed over time, and how do you divide that time up across the species mix you currently have? As the, uh, the general fishing uh, deteriorated, we found that uh, we had to start needing to, to specialise. Probably first started pushing the taupe fishing trips as far back as 1992 and very quickly found that uh, with the small boats we were able to get out in places and, and capture an awful lot of fish. The ray fishing at that stage was, was incredible. I mean, you, you, you could catch 50-odd in a tide. Certainly the likes of the, the flatfish, a pal of mine moved up here for the, for the place, moved into Lewis Bay for the place, because there were just a lot of them. You mentioned taking 50 plus rays in a tide, would that be all thornbacks or were there other species about then too? That would be a mixture of uh, thornback, cuckoos, spotted uh, and blondes, we used to get some blondes uh, close to 20 pound. One night we had two 23 pound thornback. Uh, you just couldn't dream of catching fish that size now, it just, just isn't going to happen. Why is it not going to happen? They've been caught. Yeah, but by who? In, in recent years they've learnt a lot about populations. They used to think like the North Sea of cod was one population, but they've realised now it's made up of lots of little populations. And I believe the, the population that used to come into to Loose Bay was they were taken by fleets and fleets of nets that were going out. 
unfortunately they were, they were taking them at the time they were, they were in the bay before you could catch them on rod and line because they tend to come in, in in February time into the bay they're racing round looking for, for partners for breeding and so the commercials saw them off and now unfortunately there's a slight recovery on the thornback days but the commercials have already got the nets out and they're targeting them again but uh, the recent recent event, the shark tagging program we had, there were only six rays caught of a breeding size, and that's 500 angler days. So the uh, the ray population, I do believe, could recover. An interesting story about the rays is like the Thames. The Thames fishermen uh, state that there's more rays about than they've ever seen. In fact, there actually is more rays in the Thames, but the whole of, of the North Sea population now com goes down to the Thames to breed. It's the one last breeding place. And well, if, that, if that population is taken out, then that's it for the population of the whole North Sea. I remember when I first started visiting Loose Bay and Loch Ryan just across the way, we used to see quite a few spotted rays. In fact, back in 1973, I took the British and Scottish spotted ray record from Loch Ryan. Then suddenly they were gone. But now I hear whispers that there are a few starting to creep back. Some research that has been done does tend to suggest that the, the, the larger rays, and I'll include thornbacks in that, are actually suffering. But the smaller rays are supposed to be doing quite well and holding their own. Cuckoo rays and the spotted rays are supposed to be doing well, according to the government. Although, to be honest, I haven't necessarily seen that with anglers' catches. What about the wider species mix? Perhaps you might compare and contrast the balance and the quality of things here in Loose Bay, and possibly how they have changed. There's certainly species disappeared. Uh, turbot and brill are something that's I've just I've just not heard of anyone catching them around here for, for years. On the species hunt, you can still knock up 12, 15 species in a day on in various parts of the bay, but the fish are just so small. A coddling from the bay might be half a pound. If you're on a species hunt, it doesn't matter whether it's half a pound or ten pound. So we can still knock up a lot of species, but generally they're just small fish. The rays are small, uh, the whiting are small, the haddock are small, everything just seems to get smaller and smaller each year and every year you end up taking marks off your navigator because they no longer produce. Another very interesting Ian Burrett fact is that you do all of your chartering, which includes a period spent up round the Isle of Mull in the spring of each year catching skate to over £200 from a trail 19 foot Orkney fast liner. In chartering terms then, what are the advantages and disadvantages of working from a small trail boat? Yeah, I mean, the boat's usually necessary because we're almost like an island. It's a long peninsula that runs uh, 17 miles north-south. And if the wind's in the east, then the boats will go and fish off Port Logan or Port Patrick on the west side into the Irish Sea. And if it's a westerly wind, really it doesn't matter how strong the westerly wind is, you can, you can always get out, find a bit of shelter and find fish. So it's a very, very safe place to fish, providing you know your forecasts. The small boat works for around here, I'm not saying it works for, for every venue, but we have a situation where we've only got one harbour that dries out and you've got a, you've an hour and a half, two hours either side of high water to actually get the boat out. And uh, it, it's almost impossible to run a charter boat on with, with those restrictions. But also I, I, I enjoy the, the moving around the country, going to different venues. It'd be far more difficult with a, with a bigger boat. So the small boat is also very... To my mind, it's a lot better for the actual fish because we can lean over the gunnels and pick a tope up. You'll see so often with the bigger charter boats, they've got to, to uh, either lasso them or big landing nets or something, where we can quickly just reach over, bring them in. And also, uh, like so the pollock fishing we do a lot of, we can turn round on the sixpence, we'll back up over the same mark in a few seconds where a big heavy diesel 
the noise would actually probably put the fish off. So the, the small boats work. And do you think it's as flexible or more flexible with the common skate? Oh, it's far more flexible. And the, the, the common skate, we can get them in the boat, no problems. As I mentioned earlier, with the, the gunnels and the, the gaffs, we can bring them in quite easy. It works, because with the small boats, we can very, very quickly move to a different venue if the winds are bad. I suppose to a certain extent as well, having a small boat with a smaller party on board, you're going to be able to please each member of that party more readily than somebody fishing in a party of, say, ten on a big charter boat. Yeah, the small boats work well, because we, we, what we tend to get is that you'll get two, three, four anglers that are either school friends or work colleagues or even family. And it's usually very, very good crack because they know each other well and then they say what they want to fish for. When you get groups of ten, you might have some want to fish for taupe, some want to fish for different species, some are keener than others, some are just there for the beer. So the uh, the small parties do well. So it's a very personal approach to, to sea fishing. It's very much hands-on. We are in amongst the anglers all the day and have given our advice, whether they want it or not. <laughs> and we're able to pass on our experiences and get involved with the, the fishing on the day. How do the two sides compare in terms of uh, species availability, sizes of fish, what <coughs> you might expect to catch? Is one side better for one type of fish than the other? Yes, yeah, certainly the, uh, the, the tote fishing is a lot better in, in Loose Bay when it's on. Off Logan, we've never had any really big days, or that's where we, we tend to find we get our big fish. We've had quite a few fish in the 80 pound mark off, off Port Logan. But for actual anglers who are wanting fish to take home, then you have to be off Port Logan side, the west coast. In fact, I haven't had a cod above a pound in Loose Bay for a couple of years now. But you can still get the odd four or five pound cod and the odd haddock, pan sized haddock off Port Logan. I hinted earlier you're having a number of interesting threads to your charter angling career and we can look at some of these in more detail as the interview progresses. But one that particularly intrigues me, because I've not only witnessed it at first hand but I've also been party to it, is your indifference, to put it politely, to the claiming of national records due in no small part to having to bring fish ashore for weighing, which seems at odds with your boat booking policy that all fish except for mackerel are put back alive. What's the driving force behind this line of thought? Unfortunately, the records can encourage people to kill fish that are actually proven by the fact they've reached near record sizes. The bite there. Oh, get it, get it, get it, get it. That's a smoothie. Feel for it, feel for the bite, it'll come back. There's two sides to the argument, and with the, the pollock, the pollock are actually a resident fish. And we noticed very early, in, in the early days when we were fishing, that we were actually wiping out marks that were producing lots of 12, 13 pounders, and after a year or two, suddenly weren't. So we realised that uh, with them being a resident fish, that if we took all the fish we caught, then very, very quickly there'd be none left, that would be it finished. And I got into that, that way of thinking with the, with the records, because I've heard of 75 pound tote being killed and taken on shore and weighed to claim a record. And that was fact, they didn't actually reach record status. So, fish were being killed needlessly, just for the sake of a few minutes' glory. And we've had many, many records. The anglers know we've got the records, and nowadays you get, you get as many brownie points for returning fish as you do actually for, for, for knocking it on the head. And it's got to such a stage now with peer pressure, that if, if angling skippers started taking record fish in, they'd be ostracised by the fishing community. The likes of the taupe and these record fish, they're actually the fish, they're the ones that the DNA has proved. They're able to grow big, they're good stock, and older fish actually produce more offspring. So it's important that the big fish are kept in the sea. 
Have you never thought of knocking together some sort of in-water or aerated holding cage for the smaller fish, such as the Pollock and Ras, which would allow you to take them inshore and weigh them, then release them afterwards and have the record too? I'd have no problems with that. Yeah, that could be done. It's not something I've considered doing. You know, I just don't think the records are a necessary part of, of the angling thing. It, it uh, should be about enjoying the day out and treating the fish as a bonus. Not everybody agrees with that, though, do they? Not everyone agrees, but, but that's just something for everyone in fishing. Yeah. The, uh... Pardon? Which? Where is that going? Right then, after that slight interruption from both a top and a smooth hound, we're back. Which might not be a bad time to start looking at the fishing. So if somebody wanted to come up here specifically for a big taupe, what advice would you give to them? To target a big taupe, uh, you need to be off Port Logan side, fishing into the Irish Sea. September, October's probably your best chance, although we do pick big ones up from July onwards. You're never going to get a lot of fish in a day. Three or four fish is like an exceptional day, but there's certain marks where you expect just big females, you never see the males. So, some very good fish about. And what would you call a big taupe? 60 plus. 60 plus. We've had, we've had five fish that have beaten the British record and we've had one that was well into the 90s. I'm not prepared to put a figure on it but it was a big, big fish. And while I know it's something of a new potential for you, some questions about the smooth hounds. How big can they get? Have they always been here? Or are they the result of climatic change? We're in a big learning curve when it comes to smooth hound. We have just started encouraging anglers to bring 40-50 crab and we've suddenly started getting an awful lot of smooth hound on these crab and we can't be sure whether the smooth hound have, have always been here because we've often picked up one or two when lads have brought just half a dozen crabs. We've never actually targeted them as a fishery but uh, we've had some amazing results earlier on this year with, uh, with a three week period where we're getting 30 odd smooth hound every trip and one of the belts actually had 104 in two days. The, the average size is three, four, five pounds but uh, we're getting a few to eight. There's one caught very close to here uh, 12 and a half pound but there may be areas offshore what we're trying to do now is a lot of our conventional tote grounds we're taking crab with us and seeing if we can locate any bigger ones because there may be bigger bigger fish further offshore there seems to have been a similar sort of explosion or move north if you like with black bream that's another potential you've got which you presumably haven't had for a long time what's the situation with the black bream in these parts if you want to target a black bream it's it can be a little bit of a waiting game the we've, we've had odd days where we've had over 100 in a day but generally the conditions seem to have to be right. Again, it's a fish we're learning. Each fish has its own skill level. And we do find that you seem to do better with the bream when it's been calm and settled with clean water. But, yeah, it's certainly there as a, as a target for, for a species hunt or something. They're there. And finally, the bass. The bass are caught more by uh, the shore anglers. We had a very good year two years ago because we, we tend to do a lot of live baiting for taupe. And all our best fish have actually come on, on small joey mackerel. And one mark produced four in one day, they were all around the eight pound mark. The biggest fish we've had is uh, 16 and a half pound, which was a, a one-off, came out the blue on a merry area with tote fish for years and years. That would have beat the Scottish record. Yes, yeah, it's another record, yes. That's yeah. gone back. Yes, yeah. In fact, the... Uh, one of many. Spike, to his credit, took about a quarter of an hour reviving the fish. Right. Took a long, long time to revive, but it swam off happily and hopefully continues to do so. What other record fish have you had and what have you put back then over the years? We would have had the Scottish Ballon Bass record of, we had a fish of £6.2, we've equaled the record of 5.10 on three or four occasions. We put back what would have been the Scottish Conga record, although it's, it's now been beaten. We would have had the uh, Huss record with a Huss of £23. I uh, mentioned earlier in the interview, we've had taupe in the 90s. 
Didn't you have a John Dory? Yes, we've had John Dorys, which are a rare catch in Scotland. And the one that sticks most clearly in my mind is the day we spent fly fishing for Pollock with Alan Everington, taking those IGFA tippet class records, and of course, put them all back alive. Yeah, apart from having the, what would have been the biggest, the, the Scottish record for the biggest ever, we've had fish over £20, where the record actually stands at 19.2. But yeah, the tippet records, we actually went with the purpose of trying to break the, the world records, and we beat three in one afternoon. I think we got the two, the four, the six pound tippets. And he went on to a 12 pound tippet and got smashed up, so we'll never know how big that one was. But have, you, have you thought of specialising in fly fishing for, for Pollock and offering this as a, a speciality? It's actually a growth theory for us because these guys are, are spending an awful lot of money at times and come along and spend a day on the boat and they'll catch, depending on the conditions and how good they are, they'll catch between 20 and 40 fish on the fly. Moving away from the Loose Bay area now, in the spring of each year you move your entire operation, lock, stock and barrel, up to the Auburn area for a month. How and why did that come about? Well actually I, uh, I first got involved with the, the common skate because Deep Sea World at Edinburgh were looking for fish to put into the tanks, the holding tanks. A pal of mine went up there with them, I had a little bit of interest in the skate, I'd never, never seen one or had one and uh, went up, took me on boat up there and actually took me four years to catch one. I uh, had no teachers, going blind basically, and eventually we started getting a few. Some of my regulars asked me if I would consider taking them out for a go at them, and it started off with two or three days to two or three weeks, and now we actually go up for five weeks, and uh, it's become an important part of the business. Christine, Christine, Christine. The first time our paths crossed on the big skate fishing scene was up at Loch Sunnet. Dave Devine and myself were out in one of Andy Jackson's self-drives and you came past in on your marks having launched at the salmon farm. Having no echo sound on our particular boat, you put us over a nice deep hole from which we took a 145 pounder. That particular day you were heading out of the lock to fish the sound of mull, but I know you spent time fishing inside Loch Sunnet and you've had some very good fish there too. Yeah, we used to be centred around Loch Allen as a, a central base and work our way around depending what the winds were doing. Basically it was flat calm, we'd go down the Firth alone, but if it was either windy, uh, we'd generally go into Sunnet. But I had such a, a good couple of days in Sunnet one time, with the biggest ever skate I've seen. We actually started fishing it, even when the weather was calm, and sadly that seemed to uh, nosedive quite quickly. And I've been to the mart that was throwing up a lot of big fish, and I haven't had a fish off it since. So it's maybe just just to look the way it's worked out. What size was that fish to ring? Well actually at the time we couldn't put a weight on it because the chart stopped at 207. Since then they brought out new charts which actually includes the weight and the fish turned out at 247 pound. The record's 226, not that you're interested in records by the way. No, no. <laughs> and then you started fishing down the Firth alone, um, sound the mole, that area. Yes. Any particular reason? basically producing a lot of good fish. We, uh, we, we found with the, the Firth alone it was fairly predictable. In fact, you remember you used to uh, make me make a prediction how many fish we'd catch. <laughs> <laughs> remember it well, yeah. yeah. And uh, generally you'd pick up three good females around the, around the slack water. The sort of, uh, two hours either side of the slacks would be very productive. If you got two slacks in a day you'd be up to six fish. That was like an average we used to find. What we did happen on the, the Loch Allen trip was that uh, with some sheltered waters in the strong northerlies, but the area we had to fish actually stopped fishing. We could confidently go in there and get three fish a day, and it dropped to glad to see one fish 
amongst the two belts up there. So we, we had to move, because at the time of the year we go in April, it seems as week upon week of a northerly airflow. So we were looking for a change and went to Crinan. Um, we'd heard one or two reports on the commercials of fish there, and also an angler had had a few fish there on, on an occasion. So we went in there, and it was the best thing we ever did. Our fishing was up there has been absolutely superb, with an average of six fish a day. It was said that Crinan wasn't really known for big fish, but uh, this year there were two 214-pound fish tagged within about half an hour of each other, one by myself and one with a guy called Willie Kennedy on his own boat. There's some big ones there as well. What a lot of people don't realise is there's a clear sort of uh, sex-weight ratio demarcation between male and female fish. In terms of the, the, the fish, the 180-190 looks a lot better on paper when you're telling the story. But the males are, are much more aggressive with the, well, most members of the shark family. And, and we found at Crinan we were getting a lot of uh, males around the 120, 130 mark, and they really do pull your string. I mean, they'll beat you up a fish like that. And that's a big male, isn't it? They're I mean, very big males, yeah. The biggest of ever males we've seen is, uh, I think, about a, one at 152. Wow. Um, but the, uh, the males are the fish. The females are good on paper, but the males... Very good for fun. Women are all right, but you can't beat the real thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's a strange thing with the males, because when, when they dive on you, you get them halfway up and they dive down to the bottom. The anglers moan and whinge at the time, they're hating it, but when they're telling the story in the pub afterwards, they're glad it did. <laughs> it makes a good story. Yeah. <laughs> you spent a lot of time with the uh, notorious Essex boys, Paul Morris, Dave Hawkswood. They threw up some really big fish over the times they were going up there with you, and good numbers of fish as well. And what about Paul Maris that time when uh, Dave had gone back down, he had to fish on his own, he got every single fish on the day on the boat himself. <laughs> it was always a joke when the Essex boys would arrive, because the weather could have been pretty poor. They'd arrive, the sea would flatten, and the fishing would peak, and it just seemed to happen year upon year. And at one particular time, Dave had to go because of an injury to one of his uh, work staff. So Paul was actually playing fish total for over four hours without uh, without respite. He ended up with ten fish to an average of 198 pound. His last fish was a 160. If he hadn't caught that fish, his average would have been over 200 pound. It was an incredible run. The 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 198s, 18s, sorry, 199s, 198s, and uh, quite a few 200s in there as well. Now, they don't call him Golden Balls for nothing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What's the best one he's had up there, anyway? I think about 219. Wow, some fish. Now, I know you've had a very successful career as a charter angling skipper, but I also know that it isn't all take. There's been a lot of putback work, too, in the form of the important conservation work you do on behalf of the rest of us. So tell us a little bit more about that side of Ian Burrett. Scottish Angling Conservation Network was, was founded really out of three separate organisations in Scotland who were duplicating work. The one I was particularly involved in was an organisation called Save Our Sharks, which is now, uh, it's not folded as such, but it's been taken in by the Scottish Angling Conservation Network. And really what happened was that a number of years ago, there was uh, an intention by the commercials to start targeting the taupe because they were going to sell the, the fins in the Asian market and they'd found a buyer for the meat. And basically a group of lads got together and said, we just can't allow this to happen. And when we approached the Scottish government to try and get them to, to put some protection on the taupe, they basically weren't interested. Much to say, who the hell is the anglers? So we, we realised from an early stage that we are going to have to actually raise the political profile of sea angling before we'd any attempts to get anything protected. So we, we, we started off and... 
we lobbied MPs, we actually held an event in Holyrood, the Scottish Parliament, which was well attended by MSPs, and gradually we've got our message across, and we've made fantastic advances. We now have a membership of well over 500 people. Made a lot of advances, but there's still a long way to go. We like to think we've been responsible in part for the, some of the protection on the common skate. There's a common skate now fully protected. The spur dog is, is now got such a low bycatch limit that we believe that there will be enough to cause recovery of the species. The poor beagle now has a zero attack and the angel shark is protected. So when you consider five years ago there was no protection on any shark at all and now four of them are quite heavily protected, it shows just far we have come. And we're at the moment, we're involved with the government in, in writing the sea angling strategy, which we hope will place sea angling firmly in the government's eyes. In, instead of just having to consider commercial fishing, sea angling will be at the front of any of the decisions they make. And we want to be involved in the management. We'd like to see areas closed off to destructive forms of commercial fishing. And uh, just have these areas for anglers, the potters and creelers will still be allowed to go about the trade. You know, we hope in time that it'll produce more and bigger fish in these areas. One of the great ironies here is that although SACAN is a Scottish organisation, most of the conservation benefits you've won have been on behalf of English anglers, as the Scottish Parliament seemingly doesn't want to know. Yeah, well, certainly we've got the, the toe protected in England and Wales, and when we approached Scotland to do it, the, their own feeling was that because there was no targeted fishery, there was little point, but we would keep an eye on it. But it does seem in the last couple of years that tote numbers have dropped alarmingly and we approached the government just last week to try and get them to reconsider protecting the tote and they're looking back into it. So hopefully we will get the same designation on the tote as we've got down for England and Wales. But the main thing is the, the battle with Europe because most of the decisions are made in Europe anyway. So we, uh, we joined a, a shark alliance which is an organisation, a conglomerate of a lot of separate bodies. So a lot of the laws that we've managed to get past have been affected Europe as a whole. You've already put on a couple of big angling tagging events to produce more data and to widely sell the message of what SACAD is all about. The first one was the spur dog tagathon at Loch Sunnet, the other being the shark tag at Loose Bay for the talk. So for the unconvinced, what are the benefits of these type of events? We're now running three special events. The, the shark tag is the, if you like, the flagship. We have been running that for two years and, and each day there's been roughly 200 anglers going out fishing per day. And we run tagging courses to encourage new people to come and join us. And it's one way of, of, of getting more people involved in the tagging because the important thing about the tagging is whilst people are tagging, they're looking at best codes of practice. So the actual fish care is, is better than if someone hasn't done the course. So it, it carries a lot of bonuses for the organisation as well as actually attracting the, the media. With any of these things, raising the public awareness is perhaps the biggest issue going. And the likes of the first shark attack, the BBC reckon we actually reached 100 million people because it was on breakfast TV, it was on radio 2, 4, 5. Uh, the last one there was news round, the children's news round came and did some filming. ITV border news. So the, the biggest feedback you get from meeting people and talking about the event is that they didn't realise there were actually sharks in Scotland. But at the end of the day, politicians and more importantly scientists want good hard data and plenty of it on which to base their decisions. So is the work that events such as this require likely to produce that sort of data? The standard uh, fly tagging is, is perhaps more suitable 
for some species and others. For example, the common skate, which are not particularly a high migratory species, the, the standard darts do fine because we, there's a recapture rate of nearly 33%. Some of the other migratory species, like the taupe, you find the same information but it takes just a lot longer. And the, the belief that we have that there's a unique residential population of, of spur dog in Luxon at Metiv, we're looking at ways of doing this on more technical tags now. We've actually placed some data storage tags uh, inside spur dog they need to be recaptured before you can read the data off them. But we're, we're actually purchasing just this week some acoustic listening devices. The entrance of Sunnet and Etive, it's a very tight entrance, only a few hundred yards across. So what we in intend to do is you, you stick a, a tag in a spur dog that's got a, a pinger on it and it emits a, a noise and if the fish travels within 400 yards of the, the acoustic listening device then it will register. So really, within a 12-month period, once we've got these fitted, we'll know exactly whether there is a resident population or not. If we tag a fish in, inside Sunnet or Etive, and it doesn't pass the entrance, i.e. set the alarm off, then we know they're still inside Sunnet or Etive. It's certainly looking that way. We've, we've, we had a, another recovery just last week. Uh, that's the seventh we've had so far on the standard tags, and all the fish have caught within, within half a mile of the original capture, which really is, is a strange one with spur dogs. So on the migratory pattern, 4,000 miles a year, there definitely are some fish that's hanging around the locks. What are the possibilities of radio or satellite tagging, or is that beyond the finances of what is, at the end of the day, a charity-supported organisation? No, because when we started the organisation, we became a charity, and at first it was very hard to attract funding because we'd no track record. But now we've got a history of delivering on these things, so we've, we've, we've had money come in from various sources, various charities, and one of the next stages we're going through is to, to raise some funds for satellite tagging for the Taupe, so we'll be able to find out exactly where they're going. Two final questions regarding the unit you're operating, which may be of interest to other small boat anglers. The boat itself is a 19-foot Orkney Fastliner, powered by a Tahatsu 70-horse outboard. You've had this particular boat for as far back as I can remember, and this isn't the first Tahatsu engine you've used either, which, considering the amount of use your setup gets, is a testament to both pieces of kit. What would you say to other anglers with the same thoughts in mind? Well, my boat, the original one of uh, the Onion Mark Seafish and Charters, is an old lady now. People often ask me, uh, we're not fancy getting a new boat, but when an angler drops a two-pound lead on your gel coat, you're glad you haven't got a new boat. The old lady's still going strong. I mean, certainly we put it through work it wasn't designed for, and my own particular boat now is 20, probably 25 years old, and still going strong. I have to renew the flooring occasionally because it wears out, but that's about it on the maintenance. Incredibly strong boat. I think there's a brilliant hull. It, it'll take it. Oh, another take. Just doing a bit of ducking and weaving under the other odds here, but smooth down. Better one, Phil. Right, good. Good. Right, so where were we before that smooth hound ignorantly interrupted us? <laughs> you were asking me about Tahatsu engines, I believe. Oh, that's right, yeah. What do you reckon? <laughs> They're okay. They're, um, honest truth. If you take the cowl off, they look a little bit more agricultural, like so the Yamaha. But what I will say is, I've always run mariners and they used to get a lot of water inside the cowl. The, the plugs would look rusted up after just a couple of weeks. Under the cowl of the, the Tahatsus, it stayed like a brand new engine. So they're very, very dry, and in terms of reliability, can't fault them. What nationality are they? Japanese. But if you have a look under the cowl of mariners, or Yamahas, it's got a T on the block. 
Daihatsu is the biggest block manufacturers in the world. In fact, the actual engines, the, the, the auxiliaries, the Yamaha 4, Mariner 4, Tahatsu 4, is exactly the same engine, just different paintings. Right, and this is a two-stroke? It's, it's a new TLDI two-stroke. It's similar to an E-Tech? Yeah, it's Tahatsu's version of the E-Tech. Yeah, it makes um, all the emission standards. Yes, right. and I think it will take over from four-strokes, because they're a lot more grunt than the four-strokes. And you get in the economy. I've just moved up to the um, the TLDI from a, a standard 72 stroke, and I'm saving probably about a gallon a day, which over a season's a lot of money. Yeah, unless they go wrong on them too. E allegedly, we'll see. We'll see. Well, over a four stroke should be. Yeah, perhaps over a four stroke. Yeah, yeah. So far, I've not had a problem with them. Fingers crossed. My thanks then to Ian Burrough for a good day's fishing and a good day podcasting under difficult conditions, what with the weather and fish interest every time we seem to get into full flow. Anyone wanting additional information regarding on your mark sea fishing can get this online at www.seafishingscotland.co.uk And for SACN, the Scottish Sea Angling Conservation Network, go to ssacn.org.